And we're in our second week of a series called Micah, Who is a God Like You? And we're going through this Old Testament book of Micah, who is a prophet, a spokesperson for God. And Micah's name means, Who is like the Lord? And while Micah knows that he is God's spokesperson to declare God to God's people how they've turned from God, he also knows there's no one like God. That's what he says at the end of the book. Who is a God like you? He knows there's no one like God when it comes to forgiveness when we turn back to him. And last week we saw Micah address how God's people had turned from God to worship idols, which turned God against them. He said, I'm bringing, I'm going to come against you because you've turned away from me for all these decades and centuries and you have not listened to me when I've tried to turn you back. And Micah addressed the problem he was seeing at a national level and he focused on their relationship with God. You've turned from me. And this week he gets more specific and addresses a certain group of people uh, not at a national level anymore, but at a certain group of people and how their horizontal relationships have gone wrong. Last week he was addressing your vertical relationship is wrong at a national level. This group he's talking to a certain group and telling him your horizontal relationships have gone wrong. And what he sees them doing is betraying the very people they should be loving. And our big idea for today is going to center around answering this question. What does turning from God turn us into? What does turning from God turn us into? And we're going to have three answers to that question. What does turning from God turn us into? And this passage breaks down into three sections, and two sections are about judgment, and one answer to our question will come from the first section, two answers will come from the second question, and the last section is one of hope. And Bob pointed out um, how that connects with Psalm 23. So let's look at the first section in verses 1 through 5. This is about judgment on those who covet and take. Verses 1 through 5 are about judgment on those who covet and take. And so let me give you just the big idea that comes from this section. What does turning from God turn us into? And the big idea here is that turning from God turns us into takers. Turning from God turns us into takers. And we'll see how that happens in these verses 1 through 5. And the first two verses describe those who are under God's judgment. Verse 1 starts with woe, uh, W-O-E, not like, like woe, dude, but W-O-E, woe. Uh, it was often used in, in funeral, as a funeral lament to express sadness. And the prophets then started using the woe to announce the fate of people uh, who are under God's judgment. It's like doing a funeral ritual or reading someone's obituary while they're still alive as a warning saying, unless you change, this is what's going to happen. You know, imagine somebody walking to your house and starting mourning like they're at your funeral, but you're still alive. It's like, hey, I'm still here. It's like, yeah, but the path you're on is leading to death, so I'm already mourning your death like I'm at your funeral right now. Uh, and so what are these people doing? Verses 1 and 2 say, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it's in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They oppress a man in this house, a man and his inheritance. As we look at these verses, it's important to understand how land worked in Israel. This land was given to the people of Israel by God to fulfill his promise to their ancestor Abraham. He promised Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Uh, I'm going to give this land to you that you're standing on, and I want to bless you to be a blessing to all nations of the earth. And each tribe in this family, 
each tribe and family within that tribe was given a portion of the land, which was then to be handed down through the generations of that family as their inheritance. Like you, this family gives the land to the kids, and it was never supposed to be taken from them. And this was, uh, in a farming society, this was very important because without land, you didn't have much. You'd either have end up working for someone else as a day laborer, or you become someone else's slave. You needed the land to exist in a farming society. And the problem Micah sees here uh, is people taking away other people's land. They're like cheating them out of it. And verse 2 tells us it starts with coveting. Coveting is desiring what someone else has. Uh, there's people who covet other people's fields. And verse 1 says they then devise wickedness and they work evil on their beds. They're they're lying awake at night, planning and plotting how they're going to get other people's fields that they want. And then when it's daytime, the sun comes up, they go out and do what they had planned to do the night before. And why are they able to do this? It says, because it is in the power of their hand. So in other words, these are powerful people. They have the ability and the means to carry out what they planned the night before. And so what do they do? Verse 2 says, they covet the fields, they seize them. And houses and they take them away they oppress a man in his house his inheritance and so they're they uh usually thieves operate at night but these people operate in broad daylight and they're, so they're usually they're likely using the corrupt court system to take people's property they possibly they've loaned people money in some way and then they're demanding payment on those loans and seizing the property as payments so they're using like the court system to take people's land from them that they're not supposed to be taking from them. And verse 3 tells us what God is going to do in response. It says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, this is what the Lord says about this, Behold, behold, meaning take a look, watch what is going to happen. Against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. And so he wants them to take a look. Against this family I am devising disaster. And notice the repetition of the word devise from verse 1. They devised wickedness, so God devises disaster against them. God is giving them a taste of their own medicine. He says they cannot escape it. They won't be able to remove their necks from it. It's going to stop them from acting so pridefully. That's what haughtily means. Haughtily is kind of, it's, it's this prideful way of acting. And verses 4 and 5 give more of an idea about what this disaster will be by recording what people are going to say about these coveters after the disaster comes. So verse 4 and 5 say, In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you, and moan bitterly, and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people. How he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore you will have none to cast the, lot, the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. These words are what people will say to mock them and taunt them. It's like if if you have something bad happen to you and someone mocks you by speaking for you about what you're upset about. You know, I I really like this kind of, you know, silly example, but I really like pumpkin donuts from Dunkin' Donuts. And sometimes when I go through the drive-thru there, they're like, no, sorry, we're out of pumpkin donuts, you know, because they get kind of popular. And so it's almost as if I was telling you, like, man, I went to Dunkin' Donuts and they didn't have any pumpkin donuts and then you mock me by saying, like, oh, I went to Dunkin' Donuts to get a pumpkin donut, but they were all out. Boo-hoo. You know, it's kind of like if you mocked me and taunted me by saying the thing that I'm upset about in my own words. And that's what they're doing here. And it's important what the taunts say. 
remember, people in Israel had a portion of land allotted to them by God, uh, which was passed down as an inheritance within their family. And so look what happens to these coveting divisors of wickedness. God changes their portion, a reference to their land and inheritance. He removes their portion by allotting their field to an apostate, or in other words, like a kind of a non-believer, someone who doesn't believe in God. And therefore, they don't have anyone in, in the assembled people before God to mark out their property. They were taking people's inheritance, and so the consequence they receive is they have their inheritance taken from them. And oftentimes, when the way that God shows us, uh, the way God gives us consequences for our sin, is he kind of holds up a mirror. And it's like he shows us the ugliness of our sin by having that sin done to us. It's like, look at, or, or in this case, uh, he's giving a warning. There's an opportunity for repentance here. And he says, look, here's what you're doing. And here's what I'm going to do to you. I'm going to do that same thing to you. And it's like, oh my gosh, I would hate to have that done to me. That's what I'm doing to other people. I'm going to repent of that and stop. And then if they refuse to repent with, when they get a warning, okay, it's going to be done to you. And that's kind of like the next phase of telling you, how would you like this done to you? Doesn't get repentance, then it actually gets done to you. So it's like this mirror of like, this is how ugly your sin is. This is how what it's like to be you and experience what you're doing to other people. And when is this going to happen? How do they have their land taken? Who is this non-believer in God that takes their land? Who brings the disaster? Um, we're not given the exact details here, but one of the likely options that we talked about last week is uh, this is referring to the Assyrian uh, Empire invasion that happens in 701 B.C. Uh, during the reign of King Ahaz that uh, Micah mentions he lived under in verse 1-1. He, he uh, was prophesying in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Ahaz, the king right in the middle there, was the worst king he lived during. And he was a really bad king, and that's probably when a lot of this bad behavior was taking place because they were under a bad king. Uh, and Hezekiah was the next king after Ahaz, and during his reign, the Assyrian Empire invaded the southern kingdom of Judah, and they surrounded the capital city of Jerusalem. And that meant all of that land around there, or at least marching up to the capital, was invaded. And so a bunch of people's land was plundered in that invasion process. And so that was could have, is possibly one of the times when it was like, okay, your land and your houses and stuff is going to be plundered. Um, by these Assyrians. That was possibly when uh, all this took place. Um, Micah's warning um, ha uh, came true. So what does turning from God turn us into? It, turning from God turns us into takers. And we saw in chapter 1 that the people had turned from God to worship false gods. Instead of looking to the one true God as their ultimate source for all things, they turned to false gods. And we saw what this did to the relationship with God. It, it broke the relationship with God. When, when we turn to worship things other than God, it, it turns God against us. And it breaks our relationship with Him. But it does more than that. It also breaks us. When we turn from God, it turns us into something else. It, it turns us into something we don't like. In a principle of religion that you can, and spirituality that you can see in the Bible and just in our world is this. What we look to is is what we look like. What we look to for peace, comfort, joy, security, satisfaction, hope, change, purpose, significance, is what we will look like. What we look to for those things is what we will look like. We, we take on the image of what we worship. 
And the false gods they were worshipping were takers. They required sacrifices to make them happy. They required certain religious rituals to get them to bless you. You know, they say, you need to do this to make it rain. You need to do this to have a good sea voyage. And these gods were hard to predict and they always needed something from you. They were takers. These gods take. They take from their worshippers. It was a system of exchange. You give something to me and make me happy and I'll give you what you want. And so think about this for your life. What do you look to for peace, comfort, joy, security, satisfaction, hope, change, purpose, or significance? Maybe you look to your job for significance, to feel important and worthwhile. Maybe you look to more free time for satisfaction and hope. It's what you look forward to and wish you always had more of. I just, if I just had more free time, if I just had more time to relax, then I would be satisfied. That's what you look to for hope. Maybe you look to people's affirmation for joy and security. Maybe you look to TV or food for comfort and satisfaction after a hard day or something stressful. What are you always looking forward to? What are you always trying to get more of? What do you get really angry, sad, or disappointed that you don't get? What do you seem to not be able to stop doing because you're just always... Uh, are kind of going to that thing. It's like, I know I should stop doing this, but I just keep doing it. What do you always make sure you do no matter what? It doesn't matter what the cost is. And what's happening in this, these verses is these people are coveting. And so maybe a good question to ask is, what do other people have that you want? You covet it. And there's a reason, have no other gods before me is the first of the Ten Commandments, and do not covet is the last. Because... The thing when we have other when we put God out of the first place in our priorities and out of our loves and all out of what we worship, that's when we're coveting things and having other gods before Him. And we talked about this last week. How do you fill in these blanks? If only blank, then blank. If only I had more free time, then I would be satisfied. If only I had more money, then I'd feel secure. If only my kids would behave, then I would be happy. If only I could get my to-do list done, then I would feel, you know, rested or I could relax. And that's what you're worshiping. What if you put in that blank, if only blank, then it would give me this. And the question to ask is, what is it costing you? What are you giving to get that thing? And what is it giving to you? Is it really giving you what you want? What do you, what are you putting in that blank? If only this, that's your God. What is it costing you to worship that thing? What are you giving to try and get that? And what is it actually giving to you? Is it actually giving you the hope, the satisfaction, the joy, the security? Does it ever actually deliver on the thing that you're hoping it would give you? Is it giving you what you want? And the reality is that it is costing you a lot and it's giving very little. It's just taking from you. And so, and then what does it turn you into? Does it turn you into someone who's giving more to people because of it? Do you love people more or do you take more? And do you withhold more? Do you think about yourself more? Do you think about what you can get more, more than what you can give? Does it make you more loving and generous and patient, forgiving, gracious and joyful? Or does it make you more impatient and lazy and neglectful and, and selfish and prideful? Is it making you into the kind of person that God made you to be. And the, when we look to God, we, we don't give to God so we can get from Him. We don't give to Him anything He doesn't already have. 
He gives to us what we couldn't, we could never get on our own. But because the one true God is a giver, and when we worship Him as our ultimate source for everything, we become givers too. Because God doesn't need anything from us; He's sufficient in Himself. And so He says, "I just want to bless you. I bless you so you can be a blessing." And so when we worship the one true God. We become givers. Uh, as well, because he doesn't need from us. Our relationship with him is based on grace, not what we can give to him, so then he gives out to us. And next, Micah deals with some faulty messages that people use in response to his warning of disaster. Verses 6 through 11 are about opposition to his message. And the first big idea for this section is this, turning from God turns us into truth twisters. Turning from God turns us into truth twisters. Verses 6 and 7 start it like this. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? There are other prophets at work in Israel putting out spiritual messages, but they are false prophets. Micah has delivered his message to these land takers, and their response is, you shouldn't preach this kind of stuff about disasters overtaking us and all this doom and gloom. Disgrace will not overtake us. This disaster won't come. Uh, They don't believe God will judge them for what they've done. And Micah's response uh, to them puts more questions in their mouth and helps us understand their thinking more. They would also ask, Has the Lord grown impatient with us? Are these his deeds? In other words, Micah, you're making it sound like God has grown impatient with us. You're making it sound like he's the kind of God who gets impatient and brings disasters. But that's not the God we know. Our God is patient. He doesn't bring disasters. He won't bring disgrace on us. Verse 7 sounds like God begins talking directly to to them. And so in verse 7, God replies by saying, Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? In other words, these coveting people who devise wickedness and work evil to take the property of other people don't fall in the category of people who can feel safe and secure before God. God's words, which include his promises of protection, safety, and security, are for those who walk uprightly, who are committed to him and his ways. And the first big idea for this section is turning from God turns us into truth twisters, False prophets have given them a false message about God's grace. These people who are coveting and taking from other people have twisted God's truth to think they can do whatever they want and God won't do anything about it. And God then goes on to contrast their ways with the one who walks uprightly. So look with me starting in verse 8. But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest, because of uncleanness that that destroys with a grievous destruction. The second big idea for this section is this. Turning from God turns us into enemies of those we're supposed to love. In verse 8, God says that lately his people have risen up as an enemy, Then he goes on to describe the enemy-like behaviors they are doing. They're stripping people's fine clothing from them when they had no idea they were at war. They're driving women and children from their homes. Instead of having to be afraid of an enemy from outside plundering them and driving them from their homes, 
They have fellow Israelites acting as their enemies. God commanded the Israelites to love their neighbors as themselves, but instead some are victimizing their neighbors. God's judgment on them is in verse 10. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest, because of uncleanness that destroys with the grievous destruction. They have risen up as an enemy, so God tells them to arise and go. They're driving people from their homes, so they will be driven out. The land God gave the people of Israel will not be a resting place for them because they are defiling and destroying it. Verse 11 brings us back to the other prophets and their false messages. It says, If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. And Micah is saying, These other prophets are windbags and liars. These people acting as enemies would love a prophet who just preached to them about more wine and liquor for them. And oftentimes, wine was used as a symbol of blessing. Like, you know, the wine will flow in, you know, in the days of God's kingdom. But God is making fun of them. You'd love a prophet who just talks to you about more alcohol and more drinking. And for us, we need to realize that your theology and your doctrine matter. And you may think like, oh, you know, theology and doctrine, that's for Pastor Mitch. That's for the people the scholars or, you know, whoever it is. But did you know you are a theologian? Everyone is. Theology is the study of the nature of God, what he's like. And you have a view of what God is like. You are either a good theologian or a bad theologian. And these people who are acting as enemies of their fellow Israelites are bad theologians. What they believe about God keeps them from having a real relationship with God where they respond to what he says. There aren't people, these aren't people saying, God doesn't exist, so I don't care about your warning message of of judgment. These are people saying, God is so loving and so gracious and so patient, he would never do that to me. How could a loving, gracious, good, and patient God ever bring disaster on me? They just think it's God's job to be patient, gracious, and forgiving, so they can do whatever they want. And that's why he exists. They just think it's just it's just God's job to to love me and forgive me, and so they don't think they have to change how they're living. They can live however they want to live, and turning to God requires the truth about His grace. Having a real relationship with God requires the truth about His grace. We, the messages we believe about judgment and grace will either keep us from God or pull us toward Him, and we have to get this right. What you believe about God can keep you from a real relationship with him what you think about god will either draw you toward him or keep you away from him and we can get grace wrong in two ways because there these guys are saying god would never do that and we could be on the one side where we say my sin is so bad god would never forgive me and we need to believe no god's grace is big enough to forgive you but we can also be on the opposite where we say god is so gracious he would never judge me for doing bad things and these people have a view of god's grace where they never actually go to him to receive his grace because they never actually confess sin to him and ask for forgiveness. And they never repent and rely on God's grace to change them. And so, does your belief in God's grace keep you in sin? Does it, do you just say, like, oh, well, I, I'm really, like, stuck in this sin. I keep doing this thing over and over to my kids or my spouse or coworkers or neighbors, or I'm reading the Bible and I know what it says and I'm not living it out, but, and I know I should be, but you know what? God is patient and God is gracious and so he forgives me. 
does your view of God's grace keep you living out of line with how you know God has asked you to live? Do you just keep saying, like, God's gracious, so he forgives, and it's okay? And if God's grace keeps you living in sin, then you've twisted God's truth. It's keeping you from a real relationship with God. You know, Think of being in a human relationship where all you do is hurt and ignore the other person and do the opposite of what they ask. And you just expect them to forgive you for it without ever actually talking it through with them, apologizing, asking for their forgiveness, saying, how can I be better in this relationship? What kind of relationship is that? If we just say, like, yeah, I, I know, I don't care at all about how I'm living, but it's just their job in this relationship to be patient with me and forgive me, and I don't need to talk to them about it. That's a terrible relationship. And if we use God's grace to keep us from doing something about sin in our lives, then we're misusing grace. We're using grace to keep us from a real relationship with God, and we're taking God for granted. And so here's a test. Are you teachable? Are you open to correction? When you see sin in your life, do you do something about it? When you see an idol in your life, do you do something about it? Or do you take God for granted? Do you keep going on with life, leaving your relationship with God the same because, oh, he has infinite patience and infinite grace to forgive, and I believe Jesus died for my sins, so I'm set. And we have to ask ourselves that. Do we take time to have a real relationship with God? Verse 11 and 12 final two verses end on a note of hope. These are about hope for the hurting in the true shepherd king. Hope for the hurting in the true shepherd king. We've been hearing about these people who who were takers and acting as enemies. And this means there's a lot of hurt people around. And when you have people in your life who have acted as an enemy towards you, have been taking from you, that hurts. And God says there's a disaster coming because of these people, and it's a a disaster that's going to affect the whole nation. God deals with the nation of Israel as a whole, so that means when the Assyrians invade, as a result of the sins and transgressions of the wealthy and powerful and the leadership of this nation and the false prophets, people who have been faithful to God will also experience that. And so what will God do? This is what he says in verse 12. God speaking in verse 12, and then... Micah speaking in verse 13. God says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like the flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Verse 12 is God speaking. Verse 13 is Micah's description. The big idea for this section is turning to God gives us safety and freedom. Turning to God gives us safety and freedom. And these verses describe God as a shepherd king. God declares that he will assemble and gather the remnant of Israel. And remnant is one of these words in the Bible um, that is like, well, that's kind of a Bible word, but it basically just means leftover. Um, remnant means what is left over. It, it's what's left over from the disaster God's going to bring. Um, and often it's referring to um, after God kind of cleans out the unfaithful people, who are the faithful that are left over? And God says he's going to set them to, he's going to bring them together like sheep in a fold, like flock in a pasture. This is where we see him as a shepherd. And then Micah adds the image and says he's going to open up the breach, you know, make this opening, 
and go up before them. He's going to break through and pass the gate and go out by the gate, and they're going to be led by God as their king. And this description sounds like they're in this city surrounded on the outside. And this seems to refer again to when the Assyrian army eventually invades Judah and surrounds Jerusalem with many Israelites inside. And as the army approached and was coming through the land of Israel, people fled for their lives and hid behind the walls in the city of Jerusalem. It's kind of like the last, like the Alamo. Like this is where we can, it's kind of up in the hills and there's big walls around it. So they fled there and hid. And this image here fits with, okay, God gathered all this remnant of people into the city and he's protecting them here. And then eventually he's going to lead them out of it. And the big idea for this section is turning to God gives us safety and freedom. And, and these people were hurt by their very own countrymen, people who are supposed to look out for them and have their back, acted like enemies toward them. They, they coveted their stuff and made evil plans to take, that, take it. And then the court system helped them to take it. And the leaders at the time were corrupt, so they, had, they were nowhere to turn. But they could look to God. He is their place of safety to look to. When Israel's kings who were supposed to shepherd the people failed, they could look to God as the true shepherd king to gather them, protect them, and take care of them. And so if you think about your life, we've all, as long as we're on this earth, we're going to have imperfect relationships. And that includes in the church, uh, that we are all moving towards um, treating each other like God treats us. But we're going to have imperfect relationships in the church, we're going to have imperfect relationships in our families, with neighbors, co-workers, friends. And whatever hurt or pain we've experienced in relationship, God is the place we can turn to as the one who is always safe. And he also can free us from being walled in by their sin against us. Because why are these people in this city? It's not because of their sin. It's because of the sin of other people that now this disaster has come upon the nation now they're walled in this city, surrounded on the outside. And so they're walled in because of somebody else's sin. And so often we can feel like these people have done, have hurt me. They've treated me. Uh, they, they were takers in my life. They acted like enemies towards me. I thought they had my back, but they betrayed me, stabbed me in the back. I thought they were going to be there for me, but now I'm just hurt. And we can feel walled in by that sin. But now that, you know, that story of how somebody in my past was supposed to be there for me, but now they've hurt me can now feel like it just defines my life. Now I have to be, you know, live my life defined by that. But it's like, if you kind of have this image, I know I'm kind of using it, uh, taking this image and bringing it, uh, taking some liberty with it. If we think about that, we can be walled in by like, this person sinned against me and it felt like a disaster upon my life. But this image of, you know, God is our safe place. He's our shepherd. We don't need to be walled in by that. God promises to, to gather us and not be walled in by the consequences of that, the evil that other people's sin brought into our life. They're, they were walled in, but God would lead them out. And so have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever been hurt by others? That somebody who was supposed to take care of you and love you then ended up treating you like an enemy? And do you feel walled in by that? You know, let God be your shepherd to gather you into the safety of his presence. Let him lead you into freedom from what their sin has done to you. Don't stay walled in by what they have done. Let the safety of relationship with him free you. He is your shepherd king. And Jesus, and we read Psalm 23, that this image of the Lord is our shepherd. And Jesus, this points forward eventually, the book of Micah is filled with this image of 
God coming as our shepherd king. And eventually in Micah 5, we get this prophecy of the shepherd being born uh, in Bethlehem from the line of David. And this points forward to Jesus being born in Bethlehem from the line of David. Jesus coming as the good shepherd of now. Who is the king of kings, the great good shepherd that we look to? It's Jesus who's the one who's going to lead us out of all the hurt, all the consequences of sin, all the presence of sin that we deal with in this life that Jesus eventually is going to gather us when we trust in him. He's going to gather us um, into the new city uh, of Jerusalem. He's going to lead us into uh, our future hope that we that we have, that he promises us uh, in his return that we're learning about um, several weeks ago in our other series, that we will be saved from the presence of sin, that Jesus is our true shepherd king who will gather us uh, and free us and we can find safety in relationship with him. And so we see that turning from God turns us into takers, truth twisters, and enemies of those we're supposed to love. And we need to turn back to him. And how do we have a real relationship with God? We need to look to him as the ultimate and primary source of all the things we desire. We truly desire peace and joy and significance and security and love and uh, purpose. And we look to these things. We need to look to him for those things. And we need to be teachable and able to be corrected by him and to not take him for granted. We need to go to him with the hurt others have dealt to us. Those are how we can have a real relationship with him. So I want you to I want to do something we uh, haven't done before, um, and just take 30 seconds right now. You know, just close your eyes and, and pray and ask God to show you, you know, what's one practical thing um, you could do differently as a result of listening to this passage and listening to this time um, together uh, in the Word um, in this sermon. And maybe God will show you a person's face, or maybe He'll show you a situation. Um, But take just 30 seconds and ask God to show you what's one practical thing I can do differently as a result of this time together. So I'll let you do that now. And then if you have somebody next to you, um, just tell them maybe in a sentence or a word or two, or maybe you have one word, uh, tell them what it was that came to your mind, or write it down or put it in your phone. Uh, just something that can be like, okay, this is what I wanted to do, or say, uh, yeah, so do something to kind of get it verbalized.
And for us as a community, uh, <clears throat> we want to be people who look to God uh, as our ultimate source um, for all things. And we don't want to be um, taking on the image of um, other gods. Uh, and we'll get into um, the closing words are going to be from Micah 6, 8, where God says, you know, what do I require from you? Uh, and it's that you do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. And we see in this passage that these people were not doing justice. They were not loving kindness. They had taken on the image of other gods. But as a community, we want to be people who are uh, doing justice, looking out for one another, loving kindness, uh, having that commitment to one another and expressing God's uh, commitment to each other walking humbly with him. And so as a community, um, we want to be teachable to one another and not you know, justifying our actions um, or saying, you know, God forgives me, so I don't really need to work on that. And we want to also be, uh, there's, a, there's a principle of uh, healing. It's that we are wounded in relationships. We're also healed in relationships. And so we can't run from relationships um, if we want to uh, grow and move on from the, our past hurts. And so we want to be a church family where uh, we're helping each other look to God as the ultimate source of all things, where we're allowing one another uh, to, to correct each other and use God's grace how it's supposed to be used, that, okay, there's wrong in my life, and I'm going to turn to God for that forgiveness and for the power to change, uh, and where we're being safe people um, pointing each other to God's grace and expressing that to one another. Um, so let me pray for us as a community um, that we would be able to grow into that. Father, would you help us to be a community that's doing what Mike is doing here, uh, that we would be able to um, show each other where we're not looking to you and how we've turned into something that we're not supposed to be because we've gotten our eyes off of you. Would you let us Turn to your amazing grace for forgiveness and the power to change. Lord, would you let us be safe people uh, for one another, expressing your grace and forgiveness and love to each other as we heal from past hurts. Uh, would you let us constantly look to Jesus as our shepherd king, who's both safe and freeing. Would you let us look to the day when all presence of sin will be cleansed from us and from this planet. In your son's name we pray. Amen.